my name's Wes. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Wes. Um, thanks, Tom, for inviting me. Thanks, Sonia. Uh, Jared. After Jared shared, I was like, okay, we can go home now. <laughs> That's great. Take all the pressure off. Um, same with Sonia. I mean, we know each other from Candy Club. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not like we hang out all the time. And then here he's, oh, damn, I didn't. Whoa, Sonia. Wow, okay. I love the divorce and then date him for five years. That sounds amazing. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is so fucking cool. Isn't it cool? Like we could have, you, you would never know that about Sonia. She comes in and tells you all of a sudden, like, damn, girl. And then. And then we laugh about it, you know, because why? Because we can relate because it's true for us, too, in our own way. You know, I just love it. You know, our uh, <laughs> the stuff that made your parents cry. We're laughing about, yeah. you know, the stuff my parents were crying about. We now laugh. And then the beautiful part of Alcoholics Anonymous is the stuff that I will make it about me. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> the stuff that's my shame. And all that I carried with me that I'm embarrassed about, all the shit I fucked up. Can I cuss? Is that okay? I'm kind of a cusser. Absolutely. Okay, sorry. <laughs> there used to be this meeting that says, you know, cussing is not a sign of spiritual growth. Well, keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> it's just easier for me, you know. Uh, where was I? I was going somewhere good. Oh, yeah. The, you know, the stuff that I did out there that I, that I shoved down that I didn't want anybody to know about that so embarrassing so much shame stuff my friends like oh dude that thing saturday night that's the stuff that i can help save lives with now isn't that insane what the fuck that's the best gift in the world think of just right there i could just trip out on that for a while everything i did all the most horrible things i mean i didn't like you know mutilate a cat in my backyard or anything like that but you know what i mean the other stuff that was not so cool it's the stuff that when I share it with somebody else or a sponsor or I come in here, people go, okay, I'm not alone. You know what I mean? That is the biggest gift. That right there means when I walk in this room of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to get the hugest gift that my story can help save other people. And I love that you said there's three things, right? Trust God, clean house, and help others. And... Uh, you know, one of my favorite parts of the big book is the doctor's opinion, you know. Um, that was the first thing I latched on to. But, you know, being that I'm selfish, it's easy for me to come into AA and go, what's up with this meeting? That's meeting today. It's not cool. I don't like it. You know, horrible coffee. I like those cupcakes. These people, that guy shares. Oh, right, right. I'm looking for me, 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 right? That's not my job. My job is what can I bring to the meeting? See, I'm selfish. What's in it for me? That's what I've been doing my whole life. And if you read in the doctor's opinion, in the beginning, it's talking about the beginning of AA, right? Where they started having the beginning workings of the 12 steps and they were doing this thing. And the, even the expert doctor who had been working on the front lines of addiction and all this stuff, who knew what, how rare it was that anybody would even recover. He asked the doctor, can we go try this thing with some people? Can you imagine the doctor was like, you drunks, yeah. like go help some patients? That sounds like you couldn't do it these days. They'd be like, that's a liability issue, bro. No way, not gonna happen. But he gave them the chance, right? But right in the beginning, what they say is that what they were supposed to do is 
We're going to show you how we got sober and you have to go show somebody else how to do it. Right? Think about it. That's like the main thing. This whole thing was built on. And so I love that we bring rehabs in here. And I don't think that like, I don't agree when people are like, if you're in here, you're alcoholic. No, that's not true. There's a lot of people come here. And I think they just like hanging out here. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I swear to God. I am like, listen, like, you don't sound like an alcoholic to me. <laughs> There's a few of them. And then I know people who've gone out after a while and their hats are off to them. Like, you're doing fine, you know? Um, <laughs> you're definitely not an alcoholic. Um, but, but, you know, the thing is like coming in here and rehabs and we're new and like what I'm, what I'm getting at is the new school of AA is, I don't want to bash like the new school, but I'm just saying it's like we forgot that important message. And it bugs me when I hear people share like, you know, and I get it, you know, being new and whatever, like, you know, I'm going to help somebody someday, but today, you know, I only got two months. It's like, did, did Bill wait till he got a year to sponsor somebody? No, that's what he fucking did, man. He was out there. They were pulling drunks out of the street, just trying. Because why? They were like people who didn't want to be sore. Hey, give me a motherfucking man. Wow, come on, you gotta get sober, dude. I'm telling you, get the fuck out of here. That's what they're trying to do. And it wasn't working. And then, so like, you know, they have this book that's like, hey, we bet, you know, let's write a book about what's going on here. You know? And that's, so that's like such an important part, right? How do we help people? But I've only been a, a couple of times. But you know how it is. It's uncomfortable in here. Just go, hey, man, what's up? Yeah, I'm tripping out too. This is fucking weird here. Huh? You got two days, me too. I got four days, you know? That's all we need to do. That's helping somebody. Just say fucking hi. Because if you're like me, when I come in that door, I was terrified. I didn't even know I had like anxiety and all that kind of stuff. But when I came in today, I started getting a lot of fucking anxiety. You know what I mean? It's very nerve wracking coming in here. And then you're like, I'm a newcomer. Oh, <laughs> and then what do you do? You think about yourself. Do I say that? I sound so weird. Why did I say that? Why did I say that? <laughs> Nobody's even thinking about you. You're one of like 12 newcomers that said your name like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I kind of mumbled, didn't I? I <laughs> We're like all self-obsessed. Um, it's just, you know, we could just be a friend to each other. That's the start, right? It's one alcoholic to another. I like that line in there where it says, uh, hey, look, there I am. <laughs> I like that line in there. <laughs> what a change of script. I just motherfucker stare at me. Um, it changes. <laughs> so funny. Anyhow, I can't really take a breath. Take it. <laughs> we can get high off that cookie. I'm joking. Sugar high, people. I'm sober. Anyhow, my sobriety day is 12 10 of 07. Right? That's right. Yeah, December 10th of 2007. That's my second sobriety day. So let's ramble on about the doctor's opinion a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people, we come in here and we ask people to identify as an alcoholic. What's an alcoholic? I think you could go a really long time before you even know what an alcoholic is, right? And it's funny because it feels in some sense like we equate alcoholism to like, how many DUIs do you have? Did you lose your house? Did you? Okay, you got two DUIs, lost your wife. And you get fired twice. Okay, you're definitely alcoholic. <laughs> that has nothing to do with it. There's people that do that that aren't even alcoholics. You know what I mean? 
And this is what they talk about in the doctor's opinion. So if you're new, I would suggest checking out the doctor's opinion. So if you imagine these guys and probably wasn't many women in the early, early days, I don't have a tally, I can't comment on that, but they wanted to put into a book what they were doing, what was working, right? So if you can imagine a bunch of just alkies, who are like, we're gonna write a book. People are like, who are you? You know, why should I care about your book? So they got a doctor to write a letter, right? To validate the book. Like, yo, I saw what these motherfuckers are doing. And it's working, right? And so he writes a letter about it. And that's when he talks about the stuff. So when I went into rehab, I thought my problem was meth and heroin. And that's what got me to go to rehab. But as soon as I got in the big book, I learned really quick, oh, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, the thing it talks about, why am I an alcoholic? I have an allergy. I have an allergy that when I start drinking beer, which I never thought was my problem because I didn't drink beer all day, every day. I felt like I could take it or leave it. But it explained why I could go a week without drinking and feel pretty good, do my laundry, maybe do a couple curls. I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. And then I would go, oh, it's Tuesday. I'll go have a beer. I'd be like, yeah, beer. I'll do a shot of Yeager. Shot of Yeager. And then I'd be off to the cocaine dealer's house for three days going, I don't even like cocaine. Why have I been here for three days? <laughs> That explained it to me. As, as, I'm not even kidding. That's literally what I did on my last runs. I was like, oh, the allergy. And that was like the doctor's theory, right? My theory is that these people have an allergy. I have that allergy. I've proven it to myself. I'll never not have that allergy. Can I name times where I had two margaritas and still made it to the gym? Sure. If I want to live in denial and try to think of the few times I controlled myself, I can do that all day long. But I've proven to myself that those times are very few and far between. And more times than not, I would say 99.999% of the time when I went out and thought I was just gonna have a beer or just gonna do this or just gonna do that, I went on another run and had no control whatsoever. Whatsoever. To the point of where, when I was trying to show everybody how good I was doing in my life, I'm gonna get, you watch, I can control this thing. I went to a wedding snuck off, did like nine shots of tequila. I'm not kidding. I did. And uh, then I got in my Mustang with bad tags and went to go get blow, which I didn't like in, in the middle of the day. My brother's like, what the fuck are you doing? Whoa. We just did nine shots of tequila. You're going to go drive with bad tags. You're a freaking idiot. You already have two DUIs. That's me. That's not control. That's not one time. That's just what I do when I get loaded. But it also talks about other stuff. It's just not that. It talks about being restless, ir irritable, and discontent, which to me explained why when I would get a few days, like I said, and do the laundry and maybe eat a cheeseburger and feel a little healthier about myself and, you know, how all of a sudden I would just feel so bored, right? How many people feel like in the early days or when they were trying not to drink, they got bored? Right. Okay. Now check it out. I think that's bullshit. And I'll tell you why. Because now fast forward, all this time I have sober, when I get to sit on the couch and do nothing, I am fucking stoked. <laughs> when you're new, when you're trying not to drink or use, go try to sit by yourself on a couch and do nothing. It's fucking hell. It is. Restless, irritable, and discontent. I hate how I feel when I'm not loaded. 
So even if I do stop, what will happen is I won't like how I feel. And then I'll go back and pick up again, right? That peculiar mental twist that precedes the first drink. The what, One thing I love is when they talk about how like alcoholism lets you think you're choosing, yeah. right? Oh, it's been five days. I deserve to smoke a little meth now. <laughs> I could quit if I wanted to, but... I think I've made my point clear. I am not a tweaker. <laughs> so the peculiar mental twist that even though knowing all of what I've known, right, all the things I messed up, swearing, I'll never do that again. How many of us have been there like, okay, if I could just get through this hangover, this shit, I will never drink again. And then like two days later, right? Not even that. Repeating the cycle over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, I remember times in the front of my car doing lines with a buddy of mine, like literally just sitting in the front of my Mazda doing lines all night. And then we were both like, I think we're having a hard time. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We're having a hard time. We're having a hard time. Please, we will never do cocaine again. 10 o'clock in the morning, dude, we need another eight ball. You know what I mean? It's just what we do. I know I told you I was going to do anymore, but let's worry about that next week. <laughs> no, but that's what makes me an alcoholic. I'm restless, irritable, discontent. I can't, you know, I might, it's, a, you know, alcoholism doesn't mean you can't stop, right? It's that I can't stay stopped. I don't like how I feel. Then when I pick up, I have the phenomenon of craving. And I love a couple other, and oh, one of the first lines that got me in the big book was that it says, cunning, bath, baffling, and powerful. I don't know why the first thing I ever read in the big book, I was like, bam. Because it always felt like it snuck up on me. How did I get, damn it, it got me again. I was just gonna have a beer. You know what I mean? And now it's two weeks later and I haven't slept. <laughs> Cunning, baffling, and powerful. So good, man. They wrote this in what? Somebody probably knows the exact year. Actually, was, that was actually January of 1939. Well, the first edition, but the second edition, I'm just kidding. But that, that hit me right up. Right upside the head, cunning, baffling, and powerful. But then it said, we can't differentiate the true from the false. Our alcoholic life seemed the only normal one. Now again, oh, meth is a big part of my story in case you haven't figured that out. And, but what was taught to me by my mom, by the way, was uh, listen to the similarities, not the differences, right? So, you know, when I say meth, if you love wine, just insert wine. You know what I mean? It's all the same. But we look at like how we felt and how we reacted when we drink. That's what we're looking for. We can always find like, well, I wasn't like that guy. He was a musician or whatever. Um, but we look for the similarities. Um, so couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. Ooh, that's a good one, right? I was just in full delusion of my life, right? And um my alcoholic life seemed the only normal one. It seemed normal what I was doing, right? That's what's so insane. We justify it, right? Well, it's a big deal. It's not so bad. I don't have a problem. Think about it. When all, oh, I know all of us have done it. Somebody in your life, some point was like, yo, what's up, Tom? You're kind of out of control. What? I'm fine. Fine. Like, think about what they must have witnessed to even approach us. And we're like, what? This is normal. What? So I'm having a little drink. What? You know what I mean? But for me, it was meth. I figured like if I'm at this bar, people are getting too drunk. They're going to go drive drunk, give everybody meth before they leave. Nobody will crash their car. <laughs> and I was serious. 
I believed it. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even trying to be funny. That's what I thought. I was like, why don't they have met the bars? Sir, you've had too many drinks. Here you go. I'm... <laughs> because it seemed normal to me. And, and when, I don't know if you guys ever have like meth dar, coke dar, whatever dar, right? You can just walk in and you're like, trigger. <laughs> Instantly, you know, you just find your people like that. You know what I mean? Because you think that's how the whole world is, right? You just, and then that, that's how it was for me in high school. You know, I just found the stoners and the jeans in the back. And those were my people from early on. Um, all right. So that's what I like to talk about. Like, what it is to be an alcoholic? I think that's important. Now, I'll get into my story a little bit. Um, but I want to save time more to talk about how Alcoholics Anonymous has worked in my life to get me and my life and this experience I have today. Um, but, you know, uh, my parents divorced at five. We left uh, Fullerton, California, and I went back east with my mom. And I just remember very typically feeling like I didn't fit in anywhere. And I felt like I had to really impress you. Like you, you talked about it, perfectionism. That was a coping mechanism. I didn't feel like I was good enough. So I thought it had to be super extra. So when I met people, I would lie and make up big stories, you know, and, and just like, I just went out of my way. I just, I didn't understand that like, hey, you could just be nice and you'll make a friend. I thought I had to be like this extra dude all the time. And it was very insecure for me. And uh, as we moved, um, you know, my mom was trying to get us a better life and we were moving and going here and there. And I was terrifying. I was, was always new at school and I, I, I hated it. But at the time, when you're in it, right, whatever your life's like, at least for me, and I feel like most people, you're not like, hey, this sucks or whatever. It's just, it is what it is. This is all you know, you know what I mean? And uh, there definitely was some sexual trauma in my childhood, you know, and uh, I didn't know until, you know, doing steps and work later that um, my parents' divorce really bummed me out. I didn't know. If you asked me at 12, I'd be like, yeah, divorce, big deal. My dad was, I didn't know I cared. I had to do a lot deeper work to find that out. And then my uh, mom reconnected with her high school sweetheart. And then he was a cop in Fountain Valley. And we were in Massachusetts. And then so we went to Fountain Valley and moved in. And then I got a stepbrother um, who just passed away. We don't even know how. I don't think he's one of us few weeks ago. So Kim Alexander Brokaw, God bless you, dude. Um, here's my stepbrother. That was really awkward. And my stepdad was a good guy, but a very angry cop type. And uh, it was just a very insecure, not fitting in. I'm the new guy from Massachusetts. I have like plaid pants, which are like cool now, but they weren't then. <laughs> Let me tell you. So all the kids would make fun of me in my plaid pants. Hey, what's up, Bobby Brady? And I think, you know, I just want to, I just want to be liked, right. I'm getting made fun of and, and all that stuff. So, um, like I said, that, that's just how, how it felt. And so when I discovered weed, it was an easy way to get in with a group, you know what I mean? And I just hung out with the stoners and in some AA purists have hit me up when I share like this, but I feel like I smoked a weed alcoholically right away because it very quickly moved into a scenario where I had to have it all day, every day. Um, you know, and I was stealing money from my, uh, my parents to, you know, go get a little bag of weed back then. You know, it's trippy. It's back then weed wasn't legal and it was all outdoor. 
There was no, there was no, you know what I mean? So you had, you got like Indica and stuff was imported and tie stick and stuff. Yeah. Just a whole different world, whole different world now. Um, anyhow, but I got into weed and that's right around the time when I started playing guitar and uh, I grew up around music. And so I, the, like, I want to be a rock star bug hit me. Meanwhile, I have my cop stepfather who's super conservative. So like, you know, if you wore like a rocker shirt, you know, oh, he would get mad. I had a Grim Reaper shirt. I didn't like Grim Reaper, but it was a cool picture. <laughs> the guy's like on a horse with the Sith or whatever that thing's called. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you can't wear that shit, you know? So then I'm like leaving school with my plaid shirt. Bye, Bobby Brady's leaving. And then I would go put on my Grim Reaper shirt and stuff like that. Um, but I got kicked out of... Uh, there's a rad picture of like some guy's thigh right here. <laughs> he just moved it. Yeah, that's me, boss. I'm like sharing, and all I see is this like chicken leg coming here. Sorry, I'm sorry. I have chicken legs too. You guys never come back to this meeting. Oh, sorry, Tom. Um, <clears throat> where was I? So I got I got caught for smoking weed. Because I had to have weed, and then at, on break after second period, all the guys would go in El Toro High School and smoke in the bathroom. It was packed, and I thought, well, I can certainly pull off smoking weed in here. Somebody narked, somebody narked on me, and I got busted. And so stepdad, who was the head of narcotics at Fountain Valley Police Department, came down, who had kind of an anger problem. I won't tell you how that went in the principal's office, but people did say they saw my body flying by the window a few times. <laughs> that true story. Um, so, but here's the funny thing my friend pointed out to me is like in his story, I was like, yeah, it's such a great statement. It's like, did I think about quitting weed at that point? Did I even consider? Nope. I went to move with my dad. That's what I did. I was like, no, this isn't working out, mom. I better go live with pops. And I went to pops because I knew I could grow my hair. He was in your room. I could grow my hair out and, uh, <clears throat> start anew and not to go to a continuation school. And we knew that my stepmom was a stoner, so I thought that'd be, you know, stoner-friendly environment, <laughs> which was true, too. My, my dad, my, who I went to live with, he was a doctor, and uh, I had my room down a hallway, and he knew I got kicked out for weed. It's funny when you reflect on your life with your new adult brain, and you're like, wait, that's kind of weird. I never thought of that before. <laughs> but I'd have, like, five kids in my room, right? He'd come down the hall, way down the wall, and he'd knock on my door. Hold on, Dad. Yeah, come in. What? Oh, I just hang out, man. <laughs> okay, sure thing, Dad. I mean, he never said anything. You know, we, we never got high with him, but like, it, like, what's this knocking down the hallway? So you're basically, I'm, I'm processing this in real time with you guys right now. I haven't thought about this in 35 years. So you're basically saying. I know you're a stoner, but I don't want to admit it to myself. So you better hide it so when I get there, we don't have to confront this together. Right? That's basically what you're doing. Right? Why don't you just walk up and go, it was hide the weed. I'm going to come in a second. Anyhow, I got kicked out of that school. And uh, somehow I went to a continuation and I was ditching from that school. And I, I was about to get kicked out, but then he made it so I couldn't ditch because uh, uh, the teachers would report me. Then I went, made it somehow to college and flunked out of that, Fullerton Junior High School. And I was like, I'm 18 now, you can't tell me what to do. So I started doing lots of blow with my friend, Bob Matthews. And uh, I got kicked out there. 
and I got, uh, well, I forgot, I got fired from McDonald's, I got fired from Carl's Jr., I got fired from Domino's Pizza, and I was living in my car, so that's where I was. That was my youth, and, but you couldn't tell me I had a problem or anything, right? Um, and somehow I eventually got, let me see, so I've got 15-ish minutes, right? Good. So somehow I got a good corporate job. I quit smoking cigarettes. I quit smoking weed. I was a weekend warrior. I'm doing pretty good, right? We have these periods, you know, where we kind of get it going right. And I did really well in this job and wore a tie and all these things. And I was doing pretty good. And I had many crappy bands, many, many, many crappy bands, very crappy. And then I started putting together this new band. And I had a corporate job that I excelled at. I, I ended up... Uh, being like a manager of the data intake division of an insurance company. Um, so mom was all proud and it seemed like things were going okay. And, uh, but I was still chasing the rock and roll dream. And uh, I had to go on a Sunday, I had to go to rehearsal, but I got way too drunk, typical, right? Way overshot the mark, came home, Huntington Beach. Uh, my roommate, AKA the guy who slept on my couch was there with my girlfriend and they went like this. I was like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh. We're doing heroin. I was like, oh, I'll try some of that. Cool. And so I snorted this stuff. And mind you, I was hammered. And I was like, dude, you can you drive me to rehearsal? I shouldn't drive. I'm drunk. And then so on the way to rehearsal, I had my guitar and I wrote I wrote two songs on the way to rehearsal. Right. I was like, man, I thought heroin was supposed to make you mellow. And he's like, that was meth, you fucking idiot. <laughs> so all of a sudden, my band got really good. <laughs> and I was writing all the songs and I'm not shitting you. And this is important because it works for us for a while. That's why we do it. It works for us for a while. Maybe your mom and the wine gets through the day or you snort Adderall before chemistry or whatever, you know what I mean? It works. So I snorted myself down, I'm a little over six foot down to 123 pounds. And we started selling out local, you know, clubs and stuff. Meanwhile, after years of nobody giving a shit, we have record labels flying in to see us. We're going to see Jive Records in New York. And I'm like tweaking my balls off. Sorry, ladies. My brain's out. I am tweaking my brains out. Is that insane? Somebody just have to think about that. Like, really? That's what happened? Yeah. So that's how I got my record deal. And, uh, it was all because of the meth. If I wasn't doing meth, I would have Now, that's an important thing too. It wasn't the meth writing the song. It was me, right? I just gave, it just gave me a lot more time to write because I was not sleeping at all. <laughs> but I remember with that day job, when in the beginning, day job was like Friday night, can't wait to get to my homegirl's house and we would just do meth and uh, draw pictures and make weird videos, not those kind of videos. And, <laughs> And, and, and it, for a while, it was working. It was a lot of fun, right? But, but, and we had a little tweaker crew and we were cool and happy. And then fast forward and it's just me in the bathroom talking to myself, right? You know, <laughs> the, the party changes after a while. You know what I mean? For all of us, again, it doesn't have to be meth. It could be drinking. And after a while, you're just drinking by yourself or whatever you're doing, right? It turns into a very lonely disease. It's like, where'd the party go? I'm all by myself. Um, so I toured with that band for, you know, around the world for, um, better part of a decade trying to control it, you know, switch, switch from scotch to brandy. Okay, I'll drink vodka and I'll do this. 
and uh, eventually that band fell apart and I ended up in a rehab that I was telling you about. And, and uh, basically, thank God it was a 12 step rehab. I just went there because they said I could only do 30 days. It's the only place that said that. It was a newfound life in language. And in that book, I learned that I'm a friggin' alcoholic, right? It explains so much of what had been going on for me. And again, I wasn't the guy, I thought an alcoholic was somebody who wore a trench coat, peed themselves and had shitty booze in a whatever, you know, in a paper bag, but that wasn't my story, you know? I was, I mean, it's a, I was signing autographs, you know what I mean? Which is just weird to me to even say, but that's what was happening. And then I ended up in a, in a sober living sharing a teeny little room with a guy right next to me on a bed I couldn't fit in, you know? But I did that. And by the way, I want to say this. This is super important. I don't know why I do, did, and some people don't. I heard certain things. My program has to come first. Think about it. If I get loaded, if I get loaded, my family suffers. If I get loaded, my job suffers. If I get loaded, I ain't going to the gym. So the gym is important. No, my mom's not more important. Nothing is more important than my program. I heard that. And I heard humility and I heard do this thing we do. And my sponsor said he went to a meeting every day. I went to a meeting every day. I didn't make AA an option. Do I feel like doing AA today? No, I'm not going to do it today. Who does that? You know what I mean? It's like I built my life around this. Those are the, the things I heard right away. Like this is a 12-step program. So if you haven't worked all 12 steps, you can't say you've done AA. How about that? I'm not trying to be a jerk here. But seriously, people come in, I tried AA. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, I went to like 12 meetings. Did you do any steps? No. Then you didn't do AA. You basically hung out at the gym and you didn't lift any weights. <laughs> That's actually not supposed to be funny. You're supposed to go, oh, I like that. <laughs> no, but um, seriously, the, the, what we do in here is, is that they, we learn that drinking is but a symptom. It's but a symptom. My problem isn't drinking. I have alcoholism and I treat alcoholism with drugs and alcohol. When I remove the drugs and alcohol, now I have untreated alcoholism and I'm going to go back. Unless I find the ease and comfort that, com that came from taking a drink in these rooms. Back to that thing. So when I was newly sober, I hated how I felt. I hated how I felt. So what I learned is I had two choices. You know, they say pain is uh, inevitable. Suffering is optional. So that's when I started just doing all these. Okay, I'll call a switch. Okay, I'll do a step. Okay, I'll do a gratitude list. Okay, I'll get in a prayer. Okay, I'll get in a meditation, right? So I'll just tell you like what happened for me. So uh, after that, um, I think our head lies to us a lot about recovery and tells us like my experience was like, as I was going to get sober, like sobriety is going to suck. Well, first of all, you're 123 pound tweaker lifting, li licking heroin off your bath, your dirty bathroom floor. And you're thinking sobriety is going to suck. <laughs> your life's so great now, dude. I'm vomiting blood. And I think sobriety is going to suck. No, it made up all these decisions on what sobriety is going to be like without ever having been sober. And I don't mean abstinent, I mean in recovery where I got down to causes and conditions and I changed who I was as a person because I was using since 14. So I was an unevolved, scared, anxious, you know, emotional little guy who just didn't know how to go through life, right? So it said, you'll never play music again. Okay, sound makes sense to me. You can't play music and be sober. 
Well, I got really into prayer and meditation. My brother gave me a job and uh, I felt like it was my only hope. I never, I barely graduated high school as I told you. And so I hated working with my brother. And basically it's like, okay, my only choice now is to go, okay, God, where do you want me? And I did these Wayne Dyer, all meditations for manifestation. I'm not kidding you. Uh, and I started going nuts with it. And when I started doing that, I started seeing every time I look at the clock, two, 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 three, three, four, four, four. Why is that? Oh, that means you're spiritually aligned. Okay, I don't know, but that's what's happening for me. And I'm not even, I don't have time to list all these things that started happening that I was like seeing them before they were going to happen. I kid you not. But I said, I want to get back into music. And I said, I'm not getting in a van with some shitty punk band. It better be a good band. And within 10 days of that meditation, I kid you not, Corn texted me out of nowhere. I hadn't spoke to them in 12 years and said, do you want to come play guitar with us? My name had come up years before that. But they said, oh, hell no. That guy's a <laughs> weirdo loaded. My name came up again and now I was sober. And so they say, well, you know, wasn't it difficult to go tour in a giant rock band around the world and stay sober? No, because I have a solution. It's called the 12 steps. And in the 10th step, it says the problem has been removed. I'm just putting the uh, I'm placed in a state of neutrality. I'm neither cocky or afraid, right? And so I went to meetings around the world because I worked my program around the world. I went to meetings in India. I went to meetings in Scotland, by the way. You can't understand people in Scotland. <laughs> you're going to hear, you understand people better in Japan. I went to meetings around the world and it's great. Can I have a ride back to the hotel? Oh my, I'll give you a ride, no problem, let's go. Somebody wants to fit in my whole life and I have a network worldwide that's there well, ready to help me at any time. That's amazing. So then when the, uh, then when the corn gig was going away, I was now gonna be, you know, I had, it's a pretty good gig. And by the way, when I got that gig, that was recovery. Right, life beyond my wildest dreams. I got that gig because I was sober. My brain said, "You can't do music sober." The universe is like, "Yeah, you're gonna get this gig because you're sober." That's what we learned here. Remember, it wasn't the meth playing the guitar? It was my talents. And when we get me out of the way, and I could tell you a long story of how hard I had to hustle to make that gig land for me, like flying around and. Oh, come on, you guys, I'm ready to go. I mean, I had to chase those guys for a long time before they finally made the decision to get me in. But, um, and that's something I would have, it's Stoner West, even if I was just smoking weed, right? Marijuana, wait a second, I would have been like, I don't know, man, they haven't called me yet, I don't know what's up. <laughs> but instead, I was like, okay, I'm going to hustle. I'm going to take the last of my money and fly to North Carolina. I'm going to just keep going after this thing because that's what I was taught in here. So when that gig went away, I was, uh, you know, starting to fall into self-pity. Now I'm in like my 40s, probably 30s. And I'm going to be an out-of-work musician with no, you know, what am I going to do now? And I start falling into self-pity. But it's like, wait, this thing is a design for living. It says upon awakening. That's what the 10th and 11th step is. Upon awakening, we ask God, come in. Like, this is what I want to do. Can you help me? Where do you want me to go? That's one of my key things is I'm always asking the universe, where do you want me? You know what I want to do, but where do you want me? How do you want me to do it? So when I was out of work and in self-pity, I was like, wait a second. I got to be sober, clearly. I feel like I was drawn to be a musician. So if I'm supposed to be a sober musician, I wasn't sent here to suffer and have a shitty life. Right? Right? Okay. So I said, where do you want me? If this is who I'm supposed to be, God, where do you want me? That's a 
prayer I would never say in, until I got in here and I learned. I don't even know why I said that. Just came in, you know. And I said, how do you, I said, how do I help people and make a living? That was my prayer. And then in my meditation, I had this vision. It came right to me, rock to recovery. I was going to bring music into treatment centers. Because I remembered when I was in that treatment center, it was 22 dudes. And you're like, that guy's cool. He's a weirdo. Fuck him. I don't know about him. Right? All this weird energy in there. I would just play one chord on my guitar. It could be just a silly little D chord. And I could, you know, it would transform the room with music. I remember how it felt, music in that setting. So I pitched that for six months. I want to bring music in treatment centers. Oh, that's a great idea. Cool. You want to hire me? No. Six months I did it until finally I got a bite. Finally, I got a bite. Now I have 19 people trained in the methodology that I created. We do 600 sessions a month with well over 100 treatment programs, Nashville, Portland, all the way to Ventura, all the way down the Mexican border. And I've been able to give my friends who are also sober musicians who are destined to be broke sober musicians like myself, careers. Dude bought a house. He has a stay-at-home wife and two kids off of a company that I created because of what Alcoholics Anonymous taught me. That's what we get. That's what we get in here. You know, what we get is our greatest ability to achieve. This is a design for living that is limitless. The more I put in, the more I get out. When I'm disturbed, it's a challenge to myself to go deeper and go, why am I tripping right now? Why am I angry? Why am I annoyed? Why am I afraid? And every time I face up, right, face everything and recover, right, fear, every time I show up and do that, I'm cracking through to a new level. The world had never seen a sober West, right? And now I've been able to put it together 14 years and continue to grow and evolve. It's the greatest thing in the world. Most of the world out there isn't in here talking about where they messed up, where they're struggling, where they could do better and helping each other change. You know what I mean? It's the most beautiful thing ever. So if you're new, I hope you, I hope you can give this thing a chance. Thanks for letting me show